And the corporal in my protection team tapped me on the shoulder and said, sir, we've got a little issue. The machine guns, which were up on the towers around the compound, had been turned 180 degrees inwards to face directly at me. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Tim Reynolds served in the Australian Army for 27 years. He joined as a mechanic and retired at the rank of Major. He began a new civilian career in his 40s, before being diagnosed with a terminal cancer. This is Tim's conversation with Angus Horden of A Life in Uniform, Deployments Overseas, and Overcoming Adversity Against the Odds. I'm Angus Horden, and today we're speaking with Tim Reynolds. Tim, welcome to Life on the Line. It's a pleasure to be here with you on the podcast. Thanks. What was your childhood like? I grew up in Western Australia and uh, went to, I was privileged. My mother sent me to a, an all boys private school. I didn't fit in so well there, and it was a complex environment. I was bullied a bit at school. I went into the boarding house for a period of time. That was a, a, another area of challenge. And I was brought up by a single mother. We were on the run from my father back in those days. There was domestic violence in the early, late 60s and early 70s. So that was my sort of upbringing at the age of 15. As with most young blokes back then, we looked around at what we were doing with our lives. And, and I wanted out of school. That was, that was it for me. And I looked for a trade. That opportunity came along. How old were you then and what year of school were you leaving? I left in year 10. I had applications in for a, a few different trades. Um, the mechanical side of things was my leaning because of my mum remarried and uh, my stepfather was a service station guy. He did driveway services and all changes and tyres and he made me do a bit of work experience when I was around about 13 years of age. And this was a point where I could sort of see a pathway out of school into a trade I had an opportunity with Westrail to be a, a train mechanic and at the same time I applied for an apprenticeship with the Army as a mechanic. And that was happening in the eastern states and that was a really significant drawcard for a West Aussie kid. The eastern states was a place where everything happened and, and I could get over there at 15. So I signed up for nine years of my life and I started an Army apprenticeship at a place called Balcom in Victoria. The nine years was essentially a two-year thing at Balcom, doing military and theory training around a, a mechanic. I was a vehicle mechanic. I followed by a couple of years at a big base workshop facility, and then you did a further five years sort of payback, like a return of service obligation, they call it now. I kicked off as a, as a young whippersnapper at Balcom in Victoria. Well, actually, a lot of people don't appreciate that getting out of school in year 10 to go into a trade was very acceptable then. Today, people think everyone has to finish year 12, but for a lot of people, such as yourself, who wanted to go into a trade or go into something practical, the other pathway was perfectly fine. 
and by the sounds of it, you found a good home with the army, with their apprentice school, and got to fulfil your dream to come out over to the East Coast and get into action. So coming over here, how did you find the army compared to leaving boarding school? The time at Balcom was, it had its ups and downs, I suppose. Leaving home was a challenge, and Balcom was down the peninsula near Mount Martha. It was a good couple of hours from Melbourne on a rickety old bus, which they picked us up at the airport a group of West Aussies, and we got put together with a group of other young guys between 15 to 17 years old. It was Balcom's got a tremendous history, not only as the Army Apprentices School, which started in about, I think, 1948, but it also been the rest and recovery location for the, the US Marines, the 1st Division, after the Battle of Guadalcanal in 42. We marched in and did three weeks intensive training to start off with living in what's called a guts hut. So you had 12 blokes separated by a thin steel locker and uh, whoever had the loudest stereo system or radio back in the day sort of had the power of the hut. It did have its challenges. So, you know, uh, we were taught by hardened Vietnam veterans back then. They they treated us as men, which was which is really great. But as a young apprentice and a 15-year-old child, I was grappling with puberty and pimples back then. Some of the other guys, they were men. They were shaving twice a day, but, you know, not me. I, I didn't even know how to shave. We, we learned how to tie our boots, iron our uniforms, sort of make our beds, all the things that a soldier does. That first three weeks was a lot of yelling and uh, we got broken down and rebuilt into soldiers with weapon skills. And back then we used the SLR rifle, uh, 7.62, fantastic piece of kit and uh, learnt all about it. But Balcom, I suppose the challenge was a little bit to avoid standing out. You know, you wanted to get on and learn your trade. That was the thing that I was there for. So we studied hard, went through all the vehicle systems, But if you didn't stand out, life didn't become too difficult, particularly because of the the class system that we we operated. We had a junior class and a senior class. The senior class had like an artificial rank system where we had apprentice corporals and apprentice sergeants, and they pretty much ran the establishment overnight. The majority of the staff would go home in the evening and the senior class would run the camp policing our lives, making sure we sort of completed our homework each night, kept the barracks tidy, painted the rocks white and painted the toilets with non-slip sand paint, things you never forget. We became seniors in our second year and that privilege of rank or apprentice rank didn't come to me at that stage. There was some people got it and some people sort of had that power and some didn't. And we continued till graduation after two years. We had 275 people in our class and 50 didn't make it through and that was things like academic failure and not having the right soldierly skills, failing physical training um, and getting charged for military justice, court-martials and serious offences and civil charges. So you can remember some of the funnier things that people got charged for. I remember an incident where some guys were coming home from a a night on the town on the weekend and they, they stole the doorknobs off of a taxi on the ride home. The next day, our regimental sergeant major had every the entire battalion on parade until a couple of guys confessed. You know, that was the end of that. They got charged and had their punishment, probably confined to barracks for 14 days and marching around the parade ground. But there were plenty of guys who went AWOL, uh, absent without leave, and uh, you had to be on your toes. But as I said before, the main thing was completing the trade, and, and that was a fantastic part of it. I look back on that and the friendships and bonds, it was a very formative part of my life, you know, as such a young man. And the bonds and friendships exist today and they're probably, you know, stronger than they ever were. So you've done all these studies and you've become a mechanic. But eventually 
you get a bit tired of that and you become an EME sergeant. Can you tell us about that journey? After Balcom, I did my time in Brisbane for a couple of years, practical training, then walked out and continued as a mechanic for about 15 years. I enjoyed that time, a craftsman, then a corporal, ultimately made it through the ranks to sergeant. A lot of courses along the way, but the work was good. Lots of it, non-stop. There was always vehicles to service and breaking down. And I got to the point where dirt dropping into your face wasn't on a daily occurrence and being filthy every day and covered in grease. And, you know, it wears thin. It did for me anyway. And there was a gentleman, uh, another sergeant working up at headquarters, third brigade here in Townsville. I walked up to him and I said, mate, I want your job. And uh, he said, you're welcome to it, Tim. So we rang the career manager and that day and organised a straight swap between our units. And I started as the EMI sergeant working for terrific officers, Peter Lay, Stuart Smith, and, uh, you know, really great headquarters. And this is where the, I think the blinkers came off in my career. I was exposed to things that I'd never really been dealing with in my life as a mechanic. And now uh, I became a logistician dealing with workshops and supply, transport, medical services, all working from this brigade headquarters. And it was really exciting. I started studying a mechanical engineering degree at the time, hoping to to build on my trade training. And that was at James Cook University. And I paid for that myself, studying at night time and on weekends. And I started becoming very driven about what I was doing. At that point, I was at an early stage in the headquarters, thrust into a civil military affairs position. There was a vacancy from a captain that had decided to resign and I was put into his position, thrown in the deep end a little bit, but that was okay. It's part of the challenge and uh, I learned quickly and uh, it led to my first deployment, which was to Papua New Guinea back in 1998 to a tidal wave response. Tell us about your experience regarding the tsunami in New Guinea because that was your first deployment abroad and really the first opportunity to put your work to the test in action. It was a very short notice deployment. Within six hours, my bags were packed and I was on Hercules heading across to Port Moresby, getting a briefing from the mission there and then across to Sisano Lagoon on the north coast of Papua New Guinea near Atape. My role at the time included negotiating with the provincial government around allocation of space. Uh, We had a surgical hospital which went in there and other military assets that we needed for accommodation and cooking and all those sort of things. I had to deal with issues like medical waste, helicopter and fixed wing evacuation of patients, food, water, all the logistics and civil military role that I had. It was challenging, but thoroughly exciting and rewarding. The deployments always are. I used all the skills that the ADF had sort of given me up to that point and I'd learnt the operation transition that started off as a disaster response with our surgical capability. There was some sad things with amputations of children, but great work by some fantastic people in our medical stream. And then it became a recovery operation. So we were searching for people. We had dog search teams come in from the United States looking for many lost bodies in the area. But I think the biggest learning that I got from the whole deployment was around negotiation and that disaster recovery operation, something that sort of became a bit of a tidal wave specialist from that first deployment. And uh, there wasn't too many people who had actually done the civil military affairs work in that capacity up to that point. And Tim, how long was that deployment and what was the size of the force that you were looking after? It was a small deployment. It went for a month for me. I was first in and essentially last out. I can't remember the exact size of the force, but it was well over 100 deployed, which included headquarter element, 
command and control and also the uh, parasurgical team. So, Tim, can you tell us about the transition from your lower ranks, the NCOs, the corporals and sergeants who really run the army, and how you progress with commissioning to become an officer? I was promoted to warrant officer, worked as a training instructor at Albury Wodonga. There's a big logistics base and training facility there. During that time, I continued studying. That became a lot harder. I was doing it by distance and part-time. The mathematics got a lot harder and I decided at that time that there might be more opportunities by being commissioned. And also, I'd spent such a period of time as a soldier and other ranks, I knew that there were other, other, other things to do in my career. So I put my hat in the ring and uh, was selected, commissioned as a captain, and I continued in that teaching role right across a suite of logistics courses. And uh, that went on for about a year and a half. I think one of the things that really stood out to me was the differences between simple things like going to the sergeant's mess and the officer's mess and change there. The sergeant's mess is something we all wanted to aspire to. When you're a private soldier or a corporal, becoming a sergeant had that opportunity to go to the sergeant's mess, a place where you could spend your day talking about the day's activities, developing things and strategies for the rest of the week, having a social interaction, a meal and a drink in the most beautiful surroundings in the mess. The historical memorabilia on the walls, timber-clad walls, comfortable lounges. There was always someone going around, though, in the sergeant's mess telling you that maybe the moustache was a bit too long or that there was a compulsory function on Friday afternoon or Friday evening, and, and that was compulsory for your spouse as well. My wife had to go, irregardless. And I noticed when I walked from the sergeant's mess across to the officer's mess, I was met by a full colonel who shook my hand on day one and, and said, welcome to the mess, Tim. Let me get you a drink. And it just couldn't have been more inviting in a different environment. And the sergeant's mess, it's a fight to get there. You want to get there. When the officers start at Royal Military College in Duntroon, they have a mess there right from day one. It's always a place they can go to. So it's a, it's a lot more relaxed environment, I found. But that was a nice part of the transition, other than the significant challenges of being a commissioned officer. Let's jump ahead now to January 2005. You're a major, and by this time, the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004 is fresh in everyone's mind. You're heading back into the disaster recovery. Tell us about your experiences there. That was uh, Operation Sumatra Assist. I remember it very clearly. I sat quietly as a duty field officer at Christmas. I was about to have a drink for Boxing Day test, watched the cricket, and I was advised by a knock on the door and a, a signalman came and I read a, a signal telling me there'd been a huge tidal wave in Sumatra, Indonesia. I called my commanding officer who was in Sydney at the time on leave and he gave me some famous words which I'll never forget. He said, Tim, recall the regiment. So he began the preparation for deployment to Banda Aceh. Um, it placed a great deal of responsibility on me and as the officer in command of the regiment at the time in Darwin, it was a big test. The loggy in charge of everything, loggy logistician. We had soldiers on leave right the way across Australia and we set up a, a fly home system for the soldiers. Many had to leave their families, their children in a state, you know, they were at holiday resorts. But the Army's got great detailed recall procedures for all this and things like our own disaster relief operations and cyclones and even the recent bushfires. I set up and deployed the initial water purification team within around about 12 to 24 hours, got that regiment back home and prepared all the troops and equipment 
to go on to HMAS Canimbla, which we sailed across in around about seven days, and I was the officer commanding Embark Forces. And we arrived basically in Sinache, up in Sumatra. It was the world's biggest disaster site. You know, 200,000 bodies. By the time we got there, it was a, essentially a recovery operation. Complete devastation. We saw concrete buildings washed away, ships on top of three-storey buildings. It was a challenging and complex environment. And Tim was selected as the safety officer for the operation and our unit. I coordinated the regimental recovery operation, logistics for the regiment. I think, you know, I drew a lot from my experience in Papua New Guinea and that came to the fore. And I did a lot of negotiation, dealing with other nations as they joined us. We had Spanish engineers turn up. It was, again, a, a tremendous deployment and very exciting. A huge amount of hard work. After the work with the tsunami, it's not long until you're sent to Iraq. Tell us about how that came about. Deployment ended after three months. We were invited to head back home to Australia by the Indonesians after tremendous work. Uh, we got home, refit the regiment, getting all the equipment cleaned back together. And a lot of that had to be decontaminated. We had our soldiers and everyone take a bit of leave because of the loss of Christmas. That was good. And then I got an offer I, I really couldn't refuse. I was appointed to head across to Iraq as an officer in the British-led multinational headquarters of the 1st Armoured Division, division with a wealth of experience across the, across the world. I took this as a culmination of all my skills, my knowledge and experience at all rank levels. As a mechanical engineer by then, I had my degree. It was a dangerous environment, I've got to be quite honest with you. I travelled extensively. My, my role there was to rebuild. I was a you know, sort of civil engineering capacity to rebuild all the things that needed to be fixed up for the security of the Iraqi forces. So that would be building barracks for an Iraqi army battalion, rebuilding border forts around the bottom of their borders, which would hold 30 soldiers, building what was called a provincial joint operations centre, which was a combination of their army, their police and other services so that they could start rebuilding their own security. And we had uh, an exit strategy for Iraq. By now, Tim, you're going to Iraq, which is a war zone. It's quite different to the disaster relief work in New Guinea and Indonesia. What did your wife think of it at the time? Were you a dad? Yes, uh, got two children by the stage. One of the things that I wanted to do was have a chance for those kids to settle down a bit. So we had moved to Townsville with that intention. They're adults now, which is great. But during the time of the deployment, you know, they were in Darwin, young kids going to school. My wife, she'd been dealing with me being away for my entire career, whether it was on courses, going to Shoalwater Bay for three to six months on an exercise or going away on these deployments to tidal waves. She has her own way of dealing with it, and it's pretty unique. Everyone tends to worry. My wife doesn't worry. She knows that I'll return, and she's got a lot of faith in me and also the system. It gives me a bit of strength too. So, Tim, you've been in Iraq, and you've seen the devastation a tsunami can cause. Which did you find the most confronting of those deployments? Oh, going into tidal wave zones where you have a huge amount of devastation and also dealing with dead bodies. Thankfully, in, in Archay, we didn't have to deal with the movement or handling of bodies. We had a system where we would call the Indonesians and they had a team that we call them the body snatchers, nice term, but they would come along and they would collect bones or remnants and uh, full bodies. They'd 
take samples of DNA, take photographs, do with all the cultural burial things that were necessary. So that was really helpful, but it's still very confronting. But I'd say that in terms of the confronting danger and when my life was at risk the most was in Iraq, without a shadow of a doubt, weaponed up the whole time. As I said before, I travelled a lot in every form of helicopter. I had my own protection party, warrior tank that used to take me around to Basra and different locations. And an anecdote that I could provide is a trip down to the police headquarters where I had a challenge to negotiate the return of five shipping containers. It didn't seem like much at the time. And we would fly them out via a Chinook uh, went down and we'd been working on the police headquarters refurbishing his facility. I went down to get these shipping containers and the corporal in my protection team, he was a territorial British soldier, tapped me on the shoulder and said, sir, we've got a little issue. The machine guns which were up on the towers around the compound had been turned 180 degrees inwards to face directly at me. I took stock of this and the degenerating situation and the threat that was all too apparent and it escalated very quickly and uh, my position to negotiate based on the work that we were doing that disappeared fairly quickly and the police commissioner who was there at the time he smiled grinned at me and he expressed his power that he had at the time and uh, I submitted to that we jumped in our warrior and our snatch British vehicles that they used to use funny sort of vehicle with a, a pop top that uh, I think that goes back to Northern Ireland where they used to get potatoes thrown at them but Pretty good spot to stand out the top and with a with a machine gun and uh, do top cover. And we extricated ourselves from the police headquarters fairly quickly. And there were there were other situations across Iraq all the time. There was you know stopping for IEDs, going to border crossings, dealing with smugglers of guns. And um, thankfully, I think all the tactics and procedures and things that I'd learned over the years gave me a robust nature to what I needed to do in all those situations. Negotiating was a big part of it. And Tim, were you actually ever shot at? A lot in our barracks, actually. We, we had the rocket attacks, which would come in by day and night. And we lived in a small green box called a Coromec that held two people. In the first couple of months, you tend to grab your body armour, jump under the bed, or, you know, it, it was quite a threat. And if one hit your Coromec, that was it. There was 50 cal machine gun fire coming fairly regularly, but the separation distance, the trajectory of the rounds would mean they're going fairly slow by the time they actually got into our compound, which was good. But I regularly had them dropping at my feet if I was running around the compound, keeping fit. So those were the threats that were, were sort of constant all the time. It's a constant stress that you live with. It was a constant threat by day and also by night, whether I was traveling. And when I did travel, I always had a partner with me. Someone for backup was essential. And I had a Lieutenant Commander, Naval British officer with me or a US major. As I traveled to all these facilities that I was rebuilding and constructing or fixing up around Iraq, I traveled to Baghdad quite a lot and mostly to procure money. I never spent Australian dollars. I was spending US dollars and British dollars. And that was in an effort to pay Iraqis to build their own facilities. So we'd stimulate the economy there. The strategy was really good. Every time I traveled, there was threat, whether you're in a plane or a helicopter facing RPG and plenty of times the, the flares would go off in a C-130. Traveling around in these threats at nighttime, jumping out of the back, doing fives on fives to make sure that the ID threat with your NVGs was clear. And I had to participate in all those activities, uh, even as an officer, you don't miss out. Soldiers are out there, you're out there too. Tell us about your final role in the Army. 
because I think we're up to about 2006 by now. Yes, returned from Iraq, had some leave, refurbished myself, got back online and I was posted to a new job as a battalion second in command at a large logistic unit in Darwin, first combat support battalion. I think at this time, what I'd say is the, the smile began to fade a bit from, you know, I'd done 26 years, nearly 27 years in the military and the job involved a lot of welfare type work. There was a lot of responsibility and decision making. The pressure was still on, high pressure job, lots of working hours, you know, soldiers attempting suicide back then, harassment issues, dealing with work for the commanding officer. So at that point, I made the big decision and I resigned, I resigned my commission. And I suppose I, I decided to move on and seek new things. And I found uh, an opportunity with a company called Rockfield in Townsville, moved back to the place I wanted to settle down for my children to have that stability in their education. And I went from a senior officer looking after a battalion of 600 men and women into a very small engineering consultancy with four staff. But 27 years is a long time, and I'm imagining you're in your early 40s by now. How old are your kids at this stage? They were starting year seven and year 10. So they're in high school, and they're very impressionable years. You've probably missed good chunks of it during that time. Now's your opportunity to be with your family and have a real life change. That would have been the ideal situation, but it sort of wasn't. The pressure continued for me, and I went from working in a senior role in defence to ultimately becoming the CEO of a, started off as a very small engineering consultancy in town. I started studying again because I needed to know how business worked. I'd spent my time in a system that provided everything for me, being told what to do and telling people what to do, and you know, salary just turned up. It was great and very secure. But that had all changed and I'd moved into a company with four staff with a big remit from the directors to have 10% profit and make money instead of spending money. So the situation turned a lot. So I studied an MBA and that was part-time and I did that on Friday nights, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Yeah, that's a big ask. Things that I had to do if I wanted to be in this job. And I did. I wanted this to be successful. And it was. I grew this company into a very successful multi-million dollar turnover company in the space of around about eight and a half years. And I wore every hat, finance, HR, job allocations, marketing, developing websites and and everything about the business. And so it was timed very well with my MBA as I built the business. I remember running down the hallway with a $5,000 contract when I first started. It was terrific. You know, who wants to do this job? And then that changed over time and became contracts for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, still running down the hallway saying, who wants to be on the team to do this job? I got a lot of joy from it, but I didn't get a lot of time with my family. And that's a real regret. Both in the military, I spent a lot of time away from home. The stress levels were always high in both of those jobs, in Civil Street and also in the military. Uh, So these are battles I've been through my entire life. And uh, I think back to all the battles which started back in Hale School in WA and also through Balcom. I was always sort of comfortable with responsibility and making decisions. That was one of my advantages and negotiation, which I'd learned all through my career. And I suppose one of the biggest responsibilities I found a burden was making sure that you could pay salaries for the staff as the head of a company. They've got wives and children themselves and they're working very hard. And I was putting in 12 and 16 hour days at this stage, making sure that we had enough to pay those salaries. It's the most important thing. Eventually, the cost of your time in the army and then running this business, which, as you said, became very big, 
plays on your health? Well, it started off, by this time I could afford a nice six and a half metre centre console boat and head out to the barrier reef and catch mackerel and enjoy things when I had the time and developed the sore neck just looking around, trimming up the motor on the boat. Didn't go away. Three, four months happened and finally had x-rays and MRIs and scans and nothing came up. GP, smart GP said, Tim, go and have a blood test. So I did that and uh, there was a strange protein marker and he said to me, Tim, go and see an oncologist. And to my surprise, I asked him, what is an oncologist? Quickly found out what they do. And uh, I was diagnosed with a thing called multiple myeloma, which is a terminal blood cancer in 2010, just from that sore neck and a blood test. My world continued a bit, continued working full-time with the diagnosis that had been a huge shock to me. Rockfield continued and I was still a boss there and I started having high-dose chemotherapy with the physical and mental challenges that come from the disease. It impacts your family. My wife was shocked and my children were scared. I stopped working after a couple of years. I was unable to work in any capacity again. I had a huge feeling of loss. That was the biggest thing. I'd lost everything. I mean, I've had cancer myself, and when you're faced with it, you have the choice to live or let the disease take over. I'm surprised when you received your diagnosis that you decided to keep working because you need to start putting yourself first. And the stress that this has caused, you're still fueling it through your work, and you continue this for some years. Tell us how you eventually finished work and started focusing on healing. Stress does things to people, but I've subsequently found out that the reason I've got the disease is through exposure to chemicals, through a chemical called benzene. So, yeah, I found out why it happened. Uh, there's a complete linkage between some of the exposures I've had through my life and multiple myeloma. But I'm sure that stress has a big part of it too. Where was the benzene link? Oh, that goes back to my time as a mechanic, washing parts down for that 15 years in you know, chemical solvents yeah. and range fuel. I did stop work. I had my first stem cell transplant in 2011, and that lasted three years, which was really good. Many different drug treatments, and I had my second stem cell transplant in 2015. A bit less successful, and it lasted only 12 months. But up till now, I've had seven relapses, different combinations of drugs along the way. I take about 16 pills every morning for breakfast, then about 12 for dinner. And those relapses sort of happen when the chemotherapy drugs, they stop working. They run out, lifespan stops, and you have to look for a different pathways. My hematologist is fantastic. We sit down and discuss these pathways and strategize because for me, there's no cure. This is a treatable disease, but it's not curable. It's terminal, and I need to deal with that, the mental health challenges that comes from it too. My only real hope, I suppose, is to live long enough for these new drugs to be developed and pray that a cure comes sometime in the future. Can happen. There's new things on the horizon all the time, but the trick is living long enough for them to be a realisation. Sat in a, having chemotherapy yesterday for nine hours in hospital, having an infusion, and then I take a chemo pill every day of every week, and um, you know, the beat goes on. But at the moment, my health has taken a bit of a turn for the worst. I've been through organ failure, dialysis, emergency surgery, coli bug infections. And the biggest hassle with a blood disorder is your immune system fails. I'm sort of immunosuppressed. I don't go out to shops a lot. I can't go really in crowds. Anyone who coughs and sneezes on me can give me something that can kill me. Things like coronavirus currently are a huge risk. I don't quarantine myself completely. You have to live life. So I take calculated risks and I might go to Bunnings and buy something for the house or you know things like that if I need to. 
but I do wear a mask all the time if I travel, which is rare. If I'm on an airplane, I always wear a mask. The first to wipe down the seats and the handles and the seat trays and, and all that with the disinfectant. And I'm always washing my hands about 100 times a day. How old are you now and how old are your kids? I'm 54. My children are 23 and 26. My son's married. Well, he's in the army, actually. He's a signalman and a corporal. He's having a a great time. He enjoys it. And my daughter's a midwife at the hospital. She's studying through university, which is a good result. You know, for me as a 54-year-old guy, uh, there is some good news. I mean, I, I've outlived my first prognosis of 10 years, which is terrific. It's cause for celebration. You know, in the last three or four years, I've tended to be a bit down the rabbit hole with some of the challenges around mental health and sit at home and sleep a lot. I had very low energy watch television or Netflix and, you know, you think I've lost so much through my things that I've developed, my engineering studies, my MBA, running business, it's gone. So I need to focus on number one and that's me and staying alive if I, if I can do that. I'm not going to give up. I think there's, there's certain types of people who are fairly project orientated and I tend to turn things into projects and this is, you know, project cancer for me. With that mental health challenge and going down that rabbit hole, what's the next 10 years got for me? And I can't sit still. I've got to keep fighting. This is my battle. How is your wife handling this? I think it's quite stressful for her as well. Your partner lives it with you and she lives it every day. She's now become not just my wife, but she's my carer. I had a funny response to an immune system failure two years ago, a random bug from inside my own body, a thing called CMV, retinitis hit hard and it's a bug that went into my eyeballs strange things to happen with this disease and it began eating my retinas away my immune system just couldn't handle that you know i lost around about 40 percent of my sight so when i go places my wife guides me she helps me with everything she cooks meals and not that she didn't do it before but it's a lot more of a burden for her and she's also got the worry of what's going to happen to me as well she could lose a husband that's a big thing And Tim, financially, have you been able to get support from the army for this to help you with your living? I imagine you would have had one of those old army pensions as opposed to what they do today. Are you getting benefits from them? That's exactly right. I have a DFRDB pension, which is something the old system after 20 years of service, you could get out with a pension. That was always a terrific thing. And Department of Veteran Affairs have been terrific. They have looked after all my health and my treatment which is great. Everyone you know who serves, whether it's a non-liability cover or a liability cover, get treatment for cancer, skin cancers, particularly things like these terminal cancers. And I'd really like to acknowledge a couple other veterans. You know, two other guys you've interviewed, they're young fellas. We're not immune. These young guys who have their own battles in uniform, they're an inspiration. Matt Williams, a journey on resilience, and Hugo Tooby, a captain's cancer battle. So they're great podcasts, which which I've listened to, and they're an inspiration to me as well. I understand you also gain support through the group Mates for Mates. So in recent years, I battle with mental health and depression, anxiety, anger issues, and feeling like I've got no sense of worth. Mates for Mates is a good outlet. Like-minded veterans, we could talk, have a coffee together. And they had programs for artwork, so I'd done a couple of years of art programs. And currently we're doing some large-scale paintings inside the Family Recovery Centre up here in Townsville just to brighten the place up there. We're a large six-metre by four-metre paintings. Big challenge. I have to be very careful because 
of the condition I've got. You know, things like my spine's got more holes in it than Swiss cheese and some of these amazing holes are about 18 millimetres long. It's, I don't know how they fit in there, but you know, lifting weights and lifting heavy things I can't do anymore. So I just live with these things and, and each of the challenges I, I work through and recently put my mind to help veterans in other ways. I, I tend to try and think I can use my brain, which I think still works pretty well, while my body fails me. So I'm working on a proposal for a thing called a Veteran Skill Centre, which is a, a place where veterans can go and bang a hammer against a piece of steel and work on their car or you know, work on some electronic equipment. We would have some tech space. Uh, younger veterans can develop apps and websites and gaming, VR technology. So that's a proposal that I helped with a couple of other guys develop and submit that to government for funding. And we're sitting back waiting to see if that can happen. So if it does, that'll be terrific. And we'll all work together to see if it can become a reality. Tim, I've had cancer and I've got past the five-year mark. In your case, having got past 10 years, well, now today... It's just about keeping going day by day. And some days are hard and some days are good. I like how you've got these projects to do. I mean, there's no fairness in life. You're very accepting that it is what it is. It's wonderful that you've got your kids through. Your duty is fulfilled there. You've been blessed with a supportive wife. I can imagine it's been incredibly difficult with you not being there, being busy with deployments, being busy with work and now being sick. I'm glad you do have that army pension because for all that service, at least financially, you and your family are okay. And everybody is sorry. I'm sorry that these bloody chemicals got into your system. The problem is that we didn't know that then. There's been a lot of improvement over the years and occupational health and safety was a different thing in the 80s compared to what it is today. You know, when you're wearing one set of gloves between 30 blokes with holes in the fingers and splashing chemicals on your overalls and not thinking about it, not told what it is, it's something that happens. But I smile every day. I'm a happy bloke and that's needed. You live in the day and some days are tough and you feel sick and I listen to my body. So Charmaine, my wife, she's been with me for 33 years mm-hmm. and she's not going anywhere. She's committed and, uh, you know, so thankful. You know, the bonds that I mentioned that go right back to Balcom, the, you know, when I've been sick in hospital and I've had long stints in hospital with those big problems of kidney failure and they send me messages and turn up randomly at the hospital. Guys would fly in from interstate and Tom flew across from Western Australia the first time he heard about it. So... I've de-stressed my life completely. That was one of the biggest things that I started doing, you know, not worrying about money. You know, we've got enough to survive on. You don't eat much, so you don't spend much. And thankfully, we own the home that we live in, and that's a big benefit. We just pay the rates. But, you know, when I'd say that, you know, I've had battles both in the early days through my deployments, battles, real battles with real gunfire and rockets and whatever. But, you know, when your life's on the line... These things don't seem to matter anymore. It's all about staying alive. So I've put myself in that place now and I can focus on myself and I I accept the hand that I've been dealt in life. There's a fight to survive. It doesn't just happen. It is a fight. There's still these tactical level battles each day with chemotherapy, good planning with my doctor and all these strategic considerations and like new drugs and the things I've learned. I'm glad to be more focused now and able to plan this next 10 years if I can make it and win this war. Tim, I wanted to thank you on behalf of the nation for your amazing 27 years of service, for representing us in disaster relief zones and representing us in war. 
Thank you very much for your time today and sharing your story. It's been a battle and you do soldier on and we hope you win this war and that you have many great years ahead of you. Thank you again for your service. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Appreciate it. Have a listen to the episodes that Tim referred to during his conversation with Angus. Go back to 2018, Season 2, and listen to A Journey of Resilience with Matt Williams. Mentally keeping yourself stable is incredibly hard, and I've had times when I've 100% felt myself slipping. And in 2019, Season 3, A Captain's Cancer Battles with Hugo Tuvi. You're skinny and you're frail and you're fatigued. You're looking at yourself in the mirror thinking, this is not who I am. This is not where I expected to be. For my conversations with those young veterans, find this podcast on social media at LOTLPod on Twitter and on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Also check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and lest we forget.